From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Governor Jared Polis says Coloradans are getting ripped off when it comes to health care. He says a public insurance option is a way to bring costs down. It gives people a choice because in 22 counties in our state, there's only one insurer. So there's no market. There's no choice. It's this one or the highway. Hospitals call the plan unacceptable. Why Polis is encouraged by that in our regular conversation at the state capitol today. He also answers one of the questions listeners tweeted for him. Why hasn't he declared a climate emergency in Colorado? I mean, first of all, I've never shied away from using the words climate and emergency in the same sentence. The rest of that answer coming up. Plus, why a Colorado scientist says it's time to reimagine the idea of nuclear winter. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. In the last hour, we learned who from the House of Representatives will present the impeachment case against President Trump in the Senate. A Coloradan is among them. That's Democratic Representative Jason Crow, freshman from Aurora. This is a story we're following on air and at CPR.org. And special coverage of today's House proceedings will resume later this morning from NPR. For now, we're going to tackle some of the biggest policy issues at the state level in our regular conversation with Governor Jared Polis. Depending on whom you ask, Polis is either moving too fast or not fast enough. Critics of a public health insurance option, which lawmakers will debate, say other reforms need more time to roll out. Meanwhile, on climate, activists want Polis to move faster, and they made that known by protesting his State of the State address. I spoke with the Democratic governor Tuesday at the Capitol. Governor, thanks for being with us again. Always a pleasure, Ryan. I'd like to start with the public option. It would start with Coloradans who buy their own insurance. That's about 200,000 people in this state. Why is this government's role? Yeah, well, the real question is, why are we being ripped off on health care so much? And if you look at what the public option does, is it gives people a choice. Because in 22 counties in our state, there's only one insurer. So there's no market. There's no choice. It's you're this one or the highway. We believe every Coloradan should have a choice. It also tries to rein in some of the money that hospitals make from overcharging patients. And it also gives basically small businesses and individuals The same deal with insurance companies that big businesses already have. They can't make more money off of the backs of individuals buying the insurance than they do off of companies with 500 people or 1,000 people. You say, in no uncertain terms, people are being ripped off. I want you to be precise about who's doing the ripping off. Oh, it's bad out there, Ryan. First of all, as a country, America spends twice as much on healthcare per person as other wealthy industrialized countries. Our health results are in the middle of the pack. In Colorado, it's actually even worse. The Colorado for-profit hospitals are the second most profitable in the country from overcharging patients. Now what they're doing is they're actually using some of the money they make from overcharging patients to actually lobby and engage in attacks against these efforts to save people money on health care. Obviously, we all have our frustrations with insurers as well. This public option doesn't cut them out in any way. It works through them. But what it does is it, it makes sure that they can't make more money off of individuals and small businesses than they do off of covering you know, the 500-person company or 1,000-person company. Why is it the government's role, the state government's role, to tell an insurance company what they can and can't make? Well, insurance is a very heavily regulated space. So, I mean, first of all, the biggest payers in healthcare
Medicare are government payers. Medicare and Medicaid, by far, are the two biggest payers. Uh, we also have a VA system. When you look at all the private payers out there, the insurers, they operate under a system of rules. Why? Because otherwise, they would probably just insure healthy people and not insure sick people. I mean, this is why we have insurance. Just because you, you're a cancer survivor, uh, just because uh, you have a bad heart, uh, doesn't mean you shouldn't be able to buy insurance. These are regulated products for a reason. Otherwise, they simply wouldn't function as such. Insurance wouldn't really exist because the only people that could get it would be people that were low risk and healthy. You're saying this is already the state's domain. This is just a furtherance of that role. I, I just want to point well, I would out- say it's a fixing of the role. Again, this is when we talk about the public option, it's not one that the state runs. It's run through private insurance companies. So just to be clear, assuming a public option becomes available, the government doesn't become the insurer. No, there's probably people who propose that. That's not what this public option is or many of the uh, mainstream public option proposals. The government's not the insurer, and it's a choice. Nobody has to choose it. It'll be a choice in 22 counties that have no choice today. At least there will be a choice, which is important for a market to work. Markets can't function without consumers being able to make informed choices. Okay, so the shot across the bow here, you say hospitals in Colorado are ripping people off. This is going to be a huge controversy this session. The uh, Colorado Hospital Association has called your plan unacceptable. A couple of national groups are already spending tens of thousands of dollars on ads. I want to look at one of the hundreds of thousands, Ryan. And I think that means we're we're getting close to the solution here, because if we have them that upset, uh, it probably means that we're actually getting something done to save people money. And by the way, every one of your listeners, I'm sure if you've ever had any experience with a hospital, you know that they're overcharging too, because you've seen those bills. Even if your insurance pays for it, you're like, thank goodness I have insurance. But you say, oh my God, it was $600 for like half an hour. I mean, you literally see that. One of the hospital association's key arguments is that the state would limit how much hospitals could charge patients with the public option. Given the formulas in your plan, the hospitals say they'd lose about $1.5 billion in payments from these individual policies over five years, and they argue they'll have to shift those costs to people on employer plans. And so costs for those people, just a significant portion of Colorado, will rise. Do you dispute that? No, this will actually, this will help drive down rates for everybody. We all want thriving hospitals. We just don't want among the most profitable hospitals in the country. But, but uh, talk to want, this cost yeah. shift. So the that reason that this will, this will lead to cost shifting downward for large businesses and large group plans is because because, and this is one of the reasons that the hospitals oppose it, is they know that once we have these publicly negotiated rates through the public option, that many of the other private insurers will help peg their rates to those lower reimbursement rates to prevent that overcharging. That is an epidemic in healthcare today. So you think this will be a redefining of the marketplace in general then? It won't fix everything. It'll it'll help modestly. This is about 5 to 7% of the people of the state that we're talking about. It won't affect Medicare, it won't affect Medicaid. Those are federal. So, you know, it'll have a modest downward pressure on healthcare and it'll give consumers more ability to prevent hospitals from overcharging patients. So it's interesting. There's a statement that caught my eye in your plan. It says, we are collaborating with rural and critical access hospitals to ensure their financial sustainability through the public option. So help me understand the concern you have there about rural hospitals versus the kind of fat cat picture you paint of hospitals in general. Yeah, so making sure that you have healthy providers in rural communities is absolutely critical. Are they at risk? 
Uh, yes, without the public option, many of them are at risk. They rely heavily on Medicaid, which we don't ultimately control. It's federal. We administer it. But the public option would be a huge boom to helping make sure that we have our critical access providers that are solvent in our rural and underserved communities. Because presumably there would be more people walking in their doors who have insurance. insurance. That's right. Uh-huh. Because again, what is the biggest? They're, they have people walking in their doors without insurance or only with Medicare and Medicaid, which have much lower reimbursement rates. Uh, it makes a big difference to their bottom line if even three or 4% more of their customers have insurance and therefore are reimbursed. We spoke recently with Senator Chris Holbert. He's the minority leader in that chamber. Uh, He said you should hold off on the public option for this year. I think that we should not move forward on that, at least not this year, that we should allow the reinsurance uh, bill that uh, was passed last year more time to have hopefully greater influence. For background, the legislature approved reinsurance last year. It pools money to pay some of the most expensive health care claims, presumably reducing premiums for people who have individual insurance. That said, there are estimates that this is going to cost more than you expected. You added almost $20 million to this year's budget for reinsurance. Would it be better to take this one step at a time? Are you biting off more than you can chew in healthcare? So first of all, yes, there was with the successful implementation of the bipartisan reinsurance program, it drove down rates in the exchange for individuals down by an average of 20% statewide. That's huge. The savings are greatest in Western Colorado, Southern Colorado, and Eastern Colorado. Very successful. It's time to build upon that. That didn't solve anything, everything with regard to healthcare. Let's talk about the environment now, one of your priorities as well. We got a couple of questions about this from Twitter, including one from Deborah K. Kelly of Boulder. She asks, when will he, Jared Polis, declare a climate emergency in Colorado? I mean, first of all, I've never shied away from using the words climate and emergency in the same sentence. And and I'll be happy to say it again now, Ryan, we're having an emergency with regard to climate. There's not an emergency power of the governor in this area. I mean, when there's an incident, like there's a fire or there is a disease outbreak, I can declare an emergency around a narrow set of criteria and I temporarily have additional authority. We have strong authority with regard to combating climate change. We worked very hard last year on setting statewide emission goals. Uh, We have a goal of 100% renewable energy by 2040. Excel, our largest electric utility, is going to be 80% carbon-free by 2030. Tri-State, which is 17-member co-ops across our state, they're going to have a 90% reduction in carbon emissions from where they are now by 2030. The call for tougher action on climate change came directly to the Capitol, as you know, last week. Protesters disrupted the House chamber just before your State of the State speech. They tossed some flyers from the balcony, shouted climate change slogans. Here's one chant just as you began your speech. I would just say, look, I think that people being involved and active is absolutely terrific. Sometimes activists want to get arrested to help get more publicity. And that is a tactic that has a long precedent in American history. And it's an appropriate one to get in the newspaper with, you know, with your concerns. So, I mean, that's fine. I mean, I think that if they're pushing for climate action, then hopefully they'll be able to succeed in getting the legislature to do additional work around climate action. I I don't know whether those tactics always work. I mean, honestly, sometimes they backfire and they alienate the legislators whose votes they need. It doesn't sound like they alienated you, Governor. Oh, look, I'm from Boulder. I'm accustomed to far worse, Ryan. You're hearing our regular conversation with Colorado Governor Jared Polis. We'll take a break, but before we do, a little something from the Colorado Hospital Association. 
A spokesperson tells me hospitals share the governor's goal to make care more affordable. It's just that they don't believe the public option, as it's currently proposed, is the right path. Okay, more with the governor ahead, including the state income tax and Star Wars. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. There's no telling how much news will happen by the time you get home tonight. And CPR News is here to make sure you don't miss a thing. I'm Joanne Allen, host of All Things Considered on CPR News. Cooking dinner or settling in for the evening? Get the news you missed here on the radio or use your smart speaker. Just ask it to play CPR News. Colorado Public Radio is at your command anytime with your smart speaker. Let's return to the state capitol for our regular conversation with Governor Jared Polis. Our focus, some of the thorniest issues at the legislature this year and his priorities longer term, like reducing the state income tax. One of our top four goals is a permanent tax cut for Colorado. Our top four goal is very simple. Full-day kindergarten for every child and expanding preschool. You know we're working on that. Saving people money on health care. Moving the state towards 100% renewable energy by 2040. And permanent reduction of the income tax rate. We absolutely celebrate temporary tax cuts along the way. But we're going to continue our work to try to broaden the base and lower the rates. We're not talking about any tax plan that reduces state funding, to be clear. The tax code has accumulated giveaways to particular groups and lobbyists that have over decades have made the tax code very complicated. Uh, There's an interim committee that actually reviewed some of those tax loopholes, bipartisan, recommended some that could be closed. They didn't get through the whole tax code. We have a list. We're open to almost any. We would then want to eliminate those loopholes and use those proceeds to reduce the tax rate for everybody. Here's an issue from last year that's back, a paid family leave. A lot of people, including you, had doubts about the 2019 bill, and so it went to a study committee. Uh, And you apparently have some differences with them. They want the state to run the paid family leave program. You ask them to consider requiring that companies provide the leave, but allow them to purchase plans on the private market. Why would private paid family leave be better? So, you know, part of the role of governor is we have to look out for the fiscal well-being of the state, the integrity of the state. You know, it would be a net negative if there were to be an additional fiscal risk to the state in administering a program when you can accomplish the same policy goals, and the policy goals are people get paid family leave without having to have the state involved. We can simply say it's private insurers can do it or companies can do it themselves. By the way, many companies, I think like, you know, almost half of the uh, employers in Colorado already offer some kind of paid family leave. We would like to get it to a good number where families can afford to take that time off. We have federal protections that provide for unpaid time off, but there's two deficiencies for that. One is it's unpaid and not everybody can afford to take unpaid. Again, half the employers pay, but the other don't. The other problem with that is it's only for companies that are 50 and up. So this can go smaller, you know, whether it's 20 or 30 people, whatever whatever that level is, it can be smaller than the federal, it can be more inclusive. And it can make sure that there is some pay. It doesn't mean 100% of your salary while you're off. But I mean, you know, whether it's 60, 70, 80, 90%, it might depend on how much you make, what that substitution is. But at least people can spend those precious, fierce few weeks of life with their child without having to not be able to make their rent payment or mortgage payment. I spoke with the Democratic Speaker of the State House, Casey Becker, who says one advantage of a state-run program is that it's less likely to result in discrimination, might be better positioned to serve low-wage workers. If a bill came to your desk with a state-run program, 
Would you sign it? Well, first of all, we're not going to accept any program that has discrimination in it. So, I mean, that it doesn't matter, private, public. I mean, we're not going to allow different people to be charged different amounts. Would you sign it if, if it came to you as a public? Well, again, program? as I articulated to the sponsors, the reasons that I don't support that model are, one, it would put the state on the hook fiscally. Two, it would take many more years to implement. We'd like to get paid family leave to workers by 2022. We've heard proposals that say 2024. We, we don't support that. We think 2022 is a better day to do it. And third, Again, uh, we think that we should do this in a way that allows the private sector into businesses the choice on how to do it, right? Do it yourselves, insure for it. Uh, it's up to you, but just make sure your workers get this benefit. I would just say, like, you know, just uh, we want to work with the legislature to make sure that more Colorado workers have paid family leave. And that's our basic value. I think it's a basic value of most members of the legislature. And I think that we can work together in ironing out these details to make sure it's a program that works, that doesn't put the state on the hook fiscally, and that can implement these benefits sooner rather than later. I'd like to talk about transportation. Uh, In my interview recently with Senator Holbert, uh, the Republican leader in the Senate, he said Republicans want $300 million more for transportation than you set aside in this year's state budget. What's your response to that? Well, I would say let's have a discussion. Uh, I think any major movement on transportation will be bipartisan. Let me start by taking a step back and talking about the problem. Um, We've had huge increases in population in our state, and we've had diminishing funding for roads because of the main funding source, gas tax, which has been decreasing over time. Um, So if we can work together, I think Republicans and Democrats could come up to a solution. Uh, Senator Holbert wants to put on the table more general fund money. I think Democratic leaders, myself included, say that's absolutely an appropriate part of the discussion. It's not everything, but that's part of the discussion. So I think there's a huge opportunity for this legislature to step up and do something big and bold on How about raising the gas tax? Traffic. Well, again, I think that the Democrats and Republicans have a wide variety of things that they can talk about when we talk about funding our roads. The gas tax does fund uh, our transportation system. There's other vehicles that don't pay the gas tax. Um, we talked about perhaps the need for Uh, regional areas to be able to go to the ballot around specific projects versus these statewide initiatives. Here's the issue. Three different initiatives that would have funded our roads in two years failed at the ballot box. And yet voters are still complaining to their Democratic and Republican legislators, there's too much traffic, do something about it. So we want the legislature to step up, the Republicans and Democrats to step up and have a real solution that will reduce congestion and traffic and deliver for Coloradans. Are you bringing them ideas? Is this something you're managing pretty We're happy to work on, on any ideas. I mean, there's no, you know, we are happy to work with Republicans and Democrats on big, bold ideas to deliver on transportation. We're very skeptical about going to the ballot again because they've gone three times and they failed. You know, that's why in our speech, my state of the state speech, we said, you know what? The voters have spoken. They want us in this building to address uh, traffic and congestion. If you're skeptical about going to the ballot, that would mean the gas tax is probably not at the top of your list because that would require a a vote, would it not? A a popular vote. We're up for whatever the Democrats and Republicans agree on. They have a lot of fiscal tools that they can use. And uh, we're just hopeful and encouraging that Republicans and Democrats can figure out a path forward that meets the funding deficit. All right. You had a little fun at a press conference last month, polishing up your nerd credentials, Governor. So uh, do you all know why um, Star Wars came out in the order 456123? Because in charge of the sequence Yoda was. So Star Wars 9, The Rise of Skywalker, came out over the holidays. What's your review of it? Oh, I, I liked it. I, I think that, you know, sometimes critics are just 
far too tough. But I, I think it was, you know, good quality. My Our eight-year-old son loved it. We watched all the others in the lead-up to it. I think it tied up a lot of loose threads. You know, not everybody likes the way it tied up every thread, and I'm sure it leaves a few more. But overall, I thought it was good. Um, you know, it was, it was cool to see the ultimate villain, you know, Palpatine, come back. Uh, I think it really worked on establishing Ray's character and brought the kind of, you know, Leia and Luke saga to a close. I'm not giving away too much, I hope. A lot of that was... I'm, yeah, I was wondering. Palpatine was in the teasers, so um, I, I thought it was very good. And if you haven't seen it by now, you're probably not you know, too hardcore because uh, it's been out for several weeks already. The critics might be too tough. It's funny. I'm wondering if you're talking about politics or Hollywood. Well, politics, of course. What are you talking about? <laughs> governor, thanks so much. Thank you. Democrat Jared Polis is Colorado's governor. We speak regularly at the state capitol. Now, as we said at the top of the show, Colorado Democratic Representative Jason Crow of Aurora will help present the U.S. House's impeachment case against President Trump during the U.S. Senate trial. Nancy Pelosi this morning named him one of the impeachment managers. CPR's Washington reporter Caitlin Kim was there for the announcement. Caitlin, thanks for being with us. Hi, Ryan. And tell us where you are right now. I'm actually sitting on the steps of the U.S. Capitol building. Okay, outside where there's actually a little peace and quiet to talk to us. So, uh, Jason Crow. Uh, yeah. yeah <laughs> it's relative, I suppose. Uh, Jason Crow, yeah. a freshman. He doesn't sit on either intelligence or judiciary. So why do you think Speaker Pelosi chose him? I think there are probably a number of reasons Speaker Pelosi chose him. First of all, he does. he's a lawyer. He has a legal background, so he can approach this in a legal manner. The other is, while he doesn't sit on the Intelligence or the Judiciary Committee, he does sit on the House Armed Services Committee, and he has a national security background as a former Army Ranger. So I think she was looking for people with not just who knew the ins and outs of all the hearing testimony, which he he has been studying, but also sort of the larger picture, how this affects national security, how this affects the armed services, and someone who can approach it in a legal way. You know, it's interesting because... uh... Representative Crow has had something of an evolution, both on impeachment and on his relationship with Speaker Pelosi. Uh, he was one of the freshman class calling for new leadership. Well, yeah, but now and now he, he wouldn't say when he was asked, but he said he was asked to do this. Now she's she's picked him to be one of the people that will manage this very historic uh, and solemn case. Um, as she said, she wanted people who would take their constitutional responsibilities seriously. And that's one of the reasons she chose the team that she chose. Um, and he is approaching it in that manner, um, as you can hear him say. You know, I, I uh, will approach this with the seriousness and diligence that's required to make sure that we're doing this in the right way. That's from a conversation you had with him shortly after the announcement. What, what was his response in general to being chosen? I think he, he was, you know, he was solemn about it. He, he understands the seriousness with which this is going on. Um, and as he, he said, not only the people of Colorado, but the people of America expect their lawmakers, expect congressmen to be checks and balances on executive power. And that's sort of how he is um, approaching it. He want, you know, Congress has to hold this administration accountable. Um, one of the things he did say is, you know, he's taken many oaths uh, in his career from oath of office to this job that he currently has to when he was a military officer. And it's been his uh, North Star. And that's sort of what's guiding him as he he embarks on being one of the impeachment managers. And an impeachment manager, essentially a prosecutor. Can we say that in the Senate? Um, there, I, I guess. I mean, I'm not a lawyer either, but like, I think yes, you can say that. And that he, they are presenting the case against the president, which is what a prosecutor would do. Caitlin, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you, Ryan. 
CPR's Washington, D.C. reporter Caitlin Kim, and we should mention that last September, Congressman Crow is one of seven freshman Democrats with defense and intelligence backgrounds who wrote an op-ed in the Washington Post calling for impeachment. It's unsettling to imagine the aftermath of nuclear war, prolonged darkness, sub-zero temperatures, global famine. Well, almost 40 years ago, Professor Brian Toon, an atmospheric scientist at CU Boulder, helped give this scenario a name, nuclear winter. As CPR's Sam Brash reports, Toon now wants to update the Cold War nightmare. How are you? Good. 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 I'm Sam, obviously. It's afternoon in Brian Toon's sunlit office in Boulder. The 72-year-old looks the part of a climate scientist. White hair, wireframe glasses. I'm here so he can tell me a particular story about the end of the world. His version takes place in 2025. It begins when terrorists attack the Indian parliament. And soon, that country enters a nuclear war with Pakistan. Uh, There'd be um, maybe 100 million deaths from these immediate attacks. Cities are on fire, all the hospitals are burned down. You know, this is just an unimaginable tragedy. But Toon says the worst is yet to come. The burning cities loft smoke into the upper atmosphere. And over the next few weeks, it blankets the planet. So instead of blue skies we see here in Colorado, it would be very hazy and gray. The smoke dims the sun and burns up the ozone layer. The results are strange. A cold world bathed in ultraviolet light. Crops fail, famines follow, and from there, Toon isn't really sure. It's scary. I don't want to think about all those people potentially getting killed and could potentially end um, global civilization as we know it. This is the scenario Toon imagines in a study recently published in Science Advances. It aims to update some of his original work on nuclear winter. Today, he's using modern climate models to envision the aftermath of smaller regional wars, conflicts many fear are far more likely than full-scale Armageddon. Now we've got India and Pakistan with nuclear weapons. Uh, Iran wants to have nuclear weapons. You know, you're going to have all these countries all over the world with nuclear weapons, all able to attack each other. Earlier in his career, Toon wasn't so worried about geopolitics. His work focused on more otherworldly questions, Martian dust storms and the atmosphere of Venus. All that changed in 1980, when scientists found evidence of a far earlier planetary disaster. The extinction of the dinosaurs. At the time, Toon worked at a NASA lab outside San Francisco, home to an early supercomputer. Oh, it was a gigantic machine and was less powerful than your iPhone. But he could use it to predict what all kinds of things might do to the climate. Emissions from supersonic transports and space shuttle debris from the space shuttle rocket engines. So when he heard about how an asteroid could spark fires and how those fires could produce smoke that eventually cooled the planet, killing massive amounts of plant and animal life, he thought, okay, what would happen after a nuclear war? As recently as 1975, the American National Academy of Sciences published a report maintaining that there would be little atmospheric effect from dust after a nuclear war. This is from a 1984 documentary called The Eighth Day. Tunes in it, his hair quite a bit darker. It was not until the time that this model was developed that one could really quantify the density of the nuclear clouds that might develop after a large-scale war. 
And the model suggested those clouds could have a massive effect, turning the Earth's summers into what we know as winters. This is when Toon sought the help of his former grad school teacher, probably the most famous scientist in the world. He called him up and said, oh, well, hey, Carl, you know, here's this big thing going on here that's related to what you're talking about. Maybe you want to be work with us on this. The cosmos is all that is, or ever was, or ever will be. You've probably heard of this guy, astronomer and cosmos host Carl Sagan. There's a tingling in the spine, a catch in the voice, a faint sensation as if a distant memory. Sagan accepted, and while Toon focused on the science of nuclear winter, his former teacher became its megaphone. Sagan wrote magazine articles, held scientific conventions, and made films with vivid images of the world after nuclear war. Beneath the clouds, virtually all domesticated and wild sources of food would be destroyed. Most of the human survivors would starve to death. The extinction of the human species would be a real possibility. And the media blitz pretty much worked. The warnings alarmed the public and helped push global leaders to draw down their nuclear arsenals. Welcome to the White House. That's President Reagan in 1987, signing a treaty banning short-range nuclear missiles. This ceremony and the treaty we're signing today are both excellent examples of the rewards of patience. That same year, the total number of atomic weapons on the planet peaked. It appeared the arms race had come to an end. It looked for a while like peace would break out in Europe, and sure, I think we contributed to that. But today, the U.S. has backed out of that same treaty with Russia. Meanwhile, other countries like Pakistan, North Korea, and Iran have taken a new interest in nuclear weapons. Alan Robach, a professor of environmental sciences at Rutgers University, is Toon's main collaborator on the new nuclear winter research. He says there's a pretty simple reason it hasn't halted the trend. The short answer to your question is Carl Sagan's not around. A few years ago, Robach tried to recruit the scientist many people see as Sagan's successor, astrophysicist Neil deGrasse Tyson. I said, well, maybe he could do it because he's really charismatic. So I wrote to him. Tyson replied in an email Robach shared with CPR News. It said he wouldn't elevate nuclear winter. It didn't fit with his expertise, and unlike Sagan, he tried not to take political stances in public. Do you remember what, like, you thought when you got that email? Uh, I was not happy. I was very disappointed. He he clearly, he understood uh, that he could do it if he wanted to. He has a platform. But back in Boulder, Toon says it's not Tyson's fault the world isn't as horrified by nuclear winter. He suspects something deeper. In 2020, he says it's just a lot harder for scientists to grab public attention about anything. It used to be everybody would watch the same TV shows and the same news programs. They all have the same factual basis, and now we don't. And we're living in a situation where our politics is no longer functioning. It's not even clear who's making decisions anymore to some extent. Still, he says the main upshot of his research hasn't changed in almost 40 years. Nuclear weapons are just too powerful to ever doom a single enemy. If the missiles and bombs take flight, the whole of humanity could lose its home to the cold and the dark. I'm Sam Brash, CPR News. And you can read Toon's research at CPR.org. Japanese-American veterans will be honored this weekend at History Colorado, part of the museum's Portraits of Courage show. 
It features photos of 80 veterans, including the 442nd Regimental Combat Team, one of the most decorated units in American history. World War II veteran Henry Sakaguchi of Thornton was part of that team. He died last January. I met Sakaguchi two years ago when he was 97. A warning that his story contains some graphic descriptions of war. When I met Sakaguchi, he was wearing a hat that said, Go for Broke. That was the combat team's motto. What does that mean to you, Go for Broke? It means go all out. Sakaguchi's parents immigrated from Japan. He grew up on a farm near Brighton, north of Denver. And things changed for many Japanese Americans after the attack on Pearl Harbor in 1941 by Japan. Shortly after, President Franklin Roosevelt asked Congress to declare war. December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. The following February, Roosevelt ordered the relocation of people of Japanese ancestry. They were rumored to be spies, plotting to sabotage the U.S. war effort. So with an executive order, about 120,000 people were forced into internment camps, many of them American citizens. Sakaguchi says his family was lucky to have been living in Colorado. In our community, there wasn't too much prejudice like on the West Coast. Most of our neighbors were German descent and knew. The elementary school where we went through, oh, I'd say about 15 or 20 of us Japanese-Americans. Colorado's then-governor, Ralph Carr, called the president's order unconstitutional, quoting, An American citizen of Japanese descent has the same rights as any other citizen. If you harm them, you must first harm me. A position that cost Carr his political career. Of course, there was an internment camp in Colorado, the Grenada War Relocation Center, also known as Camp Amache. It's not a place Henry Sakaguchi went. He says his family was able to stay on their farm. Then, in 1943, at the age of 22, Sakaguchi joined the U.S. Army. I felt patriotism, and also I wanted to prove my loyalty to America. He was assigned to the 442nd Regimental Combat Team, a unit made up almost entirely of second-generation Japanese-Americans, except that most of the leadership was white. Sakaguchi says that led to some tension, but one commander had this advice. If somebody calls you a Jap or something, he says, don't back down, says, fight for your rights. After basic training in Mississippi, his unit went off to Europe, Italy specifically, in 1944. Sakaguchi was assigned to the field artillery as a radio mechanic. He would fight in both Italy and France, and he was grateful he never had to be in the infantry. Being in the artillery, I didn't know how lucky I was until we got in the actual battle, and I saw what the infantry was going through. One day, he spotted a trailer near his command post. It had a canvas covering. I got curious And I lifted up the canvas, and there was a body of one of our infantrymen. And from the chest up, it was gone. Eventually, Sakaguchi's battalion advanced into Germany. I understand your battalion actually liberated a subcamp of Dachau in May of 1945. When we got near uh, Dachau... We had stopped for lunch uh, near a large, long shed. And um, 
just on the other side of the shed, we found about 150 bodies just stacked up like cordwood in their prison striped. Uh, Those uniforms uh, that are. Yeah, you know. and you tell they were just skin and bone, you know. In January 1946, the Army discharged Sakaguchi. He got married soon after, went to technical school to study radio and TV repair. He did that work for most of his life. He had four children and, with one of them, returned to Europe in 2012. On that trip, Sakaguchi searched for a church in the French village of Bifontaine, where he'd had a harrowing experience in the war. There were steps on, on each side of the doorway. As we were about halfway up the steps, a bullet had gone right over our heads and hit the side of the wall right next to us, probably about two, three inches right above our heads. So we ducked down behind the stone wall and <laughs> crawled up to get inside the church. The church had two big double doors. When we were inside, and there were about maybe 150 people in there. Villagers. Each citizen, yeah. Close call. A little bit too close. How often is the war on your mind these days? Every, every once in a while, I think about knowing about the experience and and wonder how the buddies I knew and how I think about them, how they were doing. World War II veteran Henry Sakaguchi. He was born in Henderson, Colorado, and died last January in Thornton. He fought with one of the most decorated units in American history. This Weekend History Colorado has special events to honor Japanese-American veterans as part of its Portraits of Courage exhibition, which runs through February 17th. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. CPR's active community of support has allowed CPR News to increase coverage of our state, CPR Classical to reach more of Colorado, and Indy 1023 to deliver the best in new and local music. Thank you. Daycare, work, high school, homework. Being a teen parent can feel impossible, but one young couple says they won't give up. As part of our project Teens Under Stress, CPR education reporter Jenny Brundine shares the story of Juan and Tanaya. They had a baby when they were in their early teens, and they're determined to build a brighter future. One thing was clear to Tanaya when she got pregnant. She was staying in school. A lot of people said that I would be a dropout, and I was like, no, that's not me. School's always been important to me. Ever since I was little. And here's Juan, the father. I was like, well, I guess it's time for me to grow up. Gotta skip the teenage life and become the young adult I know I can be. You never get that today. Juan was actually thinking of dropping out so he could work full-time and support Talia, now three years old. But his mom encouraged him to stay in school to set an example for his daughter. Our parents would always tell us we can't give up because... We don't want our baby seeing that, so we didn't really have a choice, but we couldn't even really think it through. Just do it. Both Juan, now 18, and Tanaya, 17, are quiet and exude calm. But there's plenty of stress in their lives. After their baby was born, their regular high school wasn't flexible enough. They came to Montbello Career and Technical High School, where the classes are smaller, learning more personalized, and there's a lot of career and technical classes. But it still wouldn't be easy. When they told me I wasn't going to be able to graduate on time, I did everything that I could 
to graduate on time. I did everything I could. I worked so hard. It's clear their daughter is their anchor. She's what inspires and motivates them. Tania says she feels overwhelmed sometimes, but she just puts her head down for a minute, then gets it done. Tania and their daughter live with Tania's mom. Juan lives with his mom, but the teenagers are together a lot during their long days. I wake up at 6, get dressed. I don't even brush my teeth yet because I still have time to do it after I pick them up. So I go warm up my car and then start heading over to her house. It's about like a five, six minute drive. (laughs) Once I pick them up, go back to my house, and then I also have to get my little sister up to take her to school too. And then I get my little sister dressed and finish getting dressed myself. And then after, drop my daughter off at her like daycare school. And then right after that, we take my little sister to school. And then from there, we go to school ourselves. At 3.15, they get out of school, pick up their daughter by 3.30. What'd you do at school today? Then the whole family drives home. The daddy sings too. They often sing to movie scores, especially three-year-old Talia. You can't hold it back anymore. Juan and Tanaya both go to work after bringing their daughter home. From 4 to 10.30. Mothers and sisters help watch Talia. Juan's money helps his mom pay rent, make his car payment so he can get Tanaya and their daughter to the doctors and to school. If there's homework, beds at 12 or 1 o'clock in the morning. Teen parents are more likely to experience depression, and poverty can make it worse. Tanaya, who struggled through depression and anxiety during her pregnancy, says the most stressful part of her life is money and still needing her mother's consent sometimes to make decisions for her daughter. We don't have a car, so she can't always catch the bus with me to go to these doctor's appointments and stuff, so I would rather have consent. And the biggest stressors for Juan... Working a lot and still not having enough money for my daughter. When he was younger, there wasn't enough food or clothes. Keeping up in school is also stressful. And there's even more changes on the horizon. His mother just moved to Arizona, so Juan and his older brother are going to try to survive on their own. Me and my brother, we're going to try to do it, but, like, you know, it's very expensive in Colorado. (laughs) We're struggling to see how this is going to play out, and it's really hard on us. Juan says after high school, he'll work for a couple of years or more, but he says he's going to try to save money. One day, he'd love to go to college and own his own business. That's how I want to show my daughter, like, you know, if I can do it, you're going to be able to do it. Tanaya says she's just focused on getting through high school. That's already a monumental task. By the end of the interview, she's resting her head on the table. Are you tired? Yeah, I'm tired. I asked Juan what's helped him get through these past few years. My daughter. Yeah. Yeah, our baby. For how old she is, she, she'll tell you some real stuff. She'll, she tells us not to give up. Like, yeah, girl, just for you, we won't give up. Yeah, she does. She'll come, like, mess with you, you know, make you smile. And, yeah, it's just, she's my happiness right there. I'm Jenny Brending, Colorado Public Radio News. Monday is Martin Luther King Jr. Day, and we just love sharing this story about how the late reverend came to hear one of his favorite hymns, for the first time in Denver. The song is called If I Can Help Somebody. It was performed at King's funeral in 1968. Here's a version recorded recently at the University of Denver from the Spirituals Project Choir. The soloist is Claudette Sweet. If I can help somebody as I can. 
find out more about If I Can Help Somebody and its Denver connections. And so we've invited Vern L. Howard to our studio. He chairs the Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Colorado Holiday Commission and knows this story. Welcome to the program. Thank you, Ryan. Let me say that If I Can Help Somebody was written in 1945 by a woman named Alma Andrazzo. It was recorded by various gospel groups and by mainstream singers like Tennessee Ernie Ford. Doris Day did a version. But it seems that King didn't hear it until a visit to Denver in 1956, what was he doing here in 56? Uh, 1956, the New Hope Baptist Church in Denver was having their Women's Day program. And they had asked Dr. King to come and speak. The New Hope Baptist Church was pastored by M.C. Williams, and his wife was Anna Lee Williams. And as part of the program, she had sung the song. She was the singer. Yes, she and was. And so he heard it at this church. And what do you know his reaction to have been? Well, at the time, Dr. King was so moved by the song. He was still the pastor of Dexter Street Baptist Church in Montgomery, Alabama. And on his way back to Montgomery, he stopped in at Atlanta, where his father was the pastor of Ebenezer and his mother was the uh, choir director. And he told her about it. He encouraged her to have the Ebenezer Baptist Church start singing the song. And then as he went back to Dexter Street, he had his choir start performing it as well. And so he spread it to Atlanta and then to uh, his his environs. Yeah, Alabama. King apparently encouraged Mahalia Jackson to record the song, which she did in 1963. Uh, Let's hear some of her version. Okay. I can You spoke with Coretta Scott King about this song. What did she tell you? That when she had heard the song and saw how Dr. King was moved by it, she realized that this was a song that defined Dr. King, his life. I mean, when you think about the lyrics of the song, when you think about how it says, if I could help somebody as I pass along, if I can help somebody with a word or a song. Now, Tennessee Ernie Ford, right there, he entered a word, a song, or a prayer. If I can cheer somebody with a word, a prayer, a song. That's how Dr. King looked at it. He looked at the Montgomery bus boycott, which was going on at the time. And when he thought about it, he said, you know what? The people we're dealing with, they're not evil. They're not bad people. They just know no better. So if I can help them with a song or a word to show how they're traveling wrong, then my living shall not be in vain. It goes on to say, if I can do my duty as a good man ought, if I can bring back beauty to a world uprought. Let's not forget that Dr. King was a Baptist minister. And the, the final 
part of that is says, if I can spread love's message as the master taught, then my living shall not be in vain. And mind you, everything he did was in a peaceful manner as the master taught and helping someone along the way as the master taught. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you as the master taught. (laughs) So it resonated with Dr. King and it was something that was deep in his heart. It stirred his soul. And it turns out that If I Can Help Somebody was a song he first heard in in Denver. On February 4th, 1968, just two months before he was assassinated, Dr. King gave a sermon called The Drum Major Instinct. And in it, he imagined his own funeral and said he wanted to be remembered for serving others, not for his fame or his accomplishments. And uh, he ended the sermon by quoting from If I Can Help Somebody. So let's, let's listen to that. Yes, if you want to say that I was a drum major, say that I was a drum major for justice. Say that I was a drum major for peace. I was a drum major for righteousness. And all of the other shallow things will not matter. I won't have any money to leave behind. I won't have the fine and luxurious things of life to leave behind. But I just want to leave a committed life behind. And that's all I want to say. If I can help somebody as I pass along, if I can cheer somebody with a word of song, if I can show somebody he's traveling wrong, then my living will not be in vain. What goes through your mind when you hear that sermon? What goes through my mind was Dr. King came to terms with the fact that he was going to die that he was going to die in the service of the civil rights movement. See, Dr. King was receiving, on average, 50 death threats a day. He said to Mrs. King and to his family that this was the sermon that he wanted to be eulogized with. Thank you for being with us. Thank you, Ryan. I cannot help Vernell Howard chairs the MLK Colorado Holiday Commission. We first spoke in 2015. This year's Marade, that is combination March and Parade, is Monday morning. I'm Ryan Warner. This is CPR News.